Welcome to the Municipal Planning Edition of Imagining the Kindness Economy. Today, on Something Different This Way Comes, my guest is Thora Cartledge. Oh, you're going to love this conversation. Something different this way comes something. Something different. Something different. Something different this way comes something. Something different, something different. I met Thor Cartledge a few years ago. We both attended an event. It was thrown by the city to update the community as a whole on their sustainability plan. So I went just as a curious citizen and a recovering journalist who kind of can't resist an opportunity to to learn and, and find out what's going on. I think Thor might have been there in a more official capacity. I don't remember her presenting or anything, but uh, she she might very well have had a role in developing Thunder Bay's sustainability plan. Thor Cartledge is, after all, a municipal planner with um, a lot of expertise and experience. She's a kind of big deal. She specializes in sustainable community development and natural resource protection. She's got more than 20 years' experience in uh, both Northern Ontario and also in Minnesota. I bumped into her again just recently, a few weeks ago. We both went to the farm conference held at Kakabek Legion. And um, as soon as I spotted her, I beetled over to eat my lunch across from her and asked if she would be my guest on this podcast. And I am so pumped that she said yes. I asked Thora to put on her daydreaming pragmatist hat, helping me imagine as, as somebody who understands the bones of this city, its its history and its potential, in a way few of us do, what she can imagine as a kind economy in action here. And when we met, first of all, she booked the spot, which I love. We each pulled out, when we sat down to record this conversation, a piece of paper. And my piece of paper was kind of the things I wanted to make sure that I asked about. And it kind of looks like a a lot of words, big ones, small ones, almost like a Venn diagram, a lot of overlapping circles and squares and arrows telling me where I want to go to if I get to this first place, that sort of thing. Thora's piece of paper was on a nice, heavy, grade paper. It was typed out beautifully and clearly, and it looked more like a poem. I'll read you it. Intercept. Problem crisis. Opportunity for change. Innovate. New technology. Best practices. Integrate. Old with new. Traditional with futurist. Infrastructure. Green with gray. Natural with engineered. Investment. Partnered. Public-private. Redevelopment. Imagine. Collaborative. Stewardship. Kindness. Economy. Imagine the kindness economy. Imagine it here now for you and me. Imagine, imagine. So, of course, I had to write her a song based on her poem. But we touched on everything we both planned on saying. And it was such a joy. I learned so much. And I so enjoyed her company. I know you will, too. So, with no further ado, here is Thora Cartledge and I. Thank you, Heather. This is an imagination game, but could be so realized. And that's what I'm so pleased that you invited me to to talk about with the different subjects that are on that are on your mind and I happen to have had some experience with. I don't think it was a happen to. I think this is where your soul goes. You are an imaginer, you are so connected to the earth and to this sort of empathy of how are things working around me? What's the flow? What's the give and the take? And and so I'm excited to see where we might go with this conversation. I wanted to start with where we are. This was your suggestion. We're meeting in a Brody library. Let's talk about this neighborhood and the bones of this neighborhood. What comes to your mind when I when I talk about that? Yes, the Brody Library itself dates to the early 1900s, like so much of this part of the original Fort William, city of Fort William. It's part of the the East End of Fort William. By comparison, West Fort, another part of the original city of uh, incorporated uh, Fort William. But the Brody Library, in fact, sits so close to the Kaministiquois River and adjacent to part of the historic core 
but also within walking distance of many different neighborhoods. It's still accessed more by pedestrians than it is by car traffic. So it's an anchor point. So much different activity that happens in this building that it seems a good location to start a conversation about um, how neighborhoods have evolved and, and the East End that we want to talk about today. Walking around this neighborhood, because when I moved here, my job was just two blocks over. This neighborhood struck me as so many of the other neighborhoods I've lived in in my in my life. Because so I was the renter with the place that you would find that you could afford if you had enough friends sharing the rent with you. Most of my adult life, often those were places that were not in good condition, and, and, and I've lived in many places. As a child and as an adult, I had to move often. And now as I go back decades later, a lot of the places I lived as a bohemian artist with other friends, they became gentrified. They became rediscovered. And they had the same good bones that this place has. And by that I mean you can look at the buildings and say there's a reason that place has been around for 100 years. It's, it's, it's pretty sound considering how little love it's gotten right? And then when I went to the um, Strong Towns presentations that that have been brought to town very recently and then a few years ago as well, that's one of the points they kept making. It was was more from a, you know, tax base perspective, but it boiled down to we built where we built first for good reason. And then when you expand from that heart place, the heart place continues to provide resource. There's a shorter distance for things to travel, a sort of primary um, value to the to the sprawling city that makes it easy to uh, make the most of investments to renew that space. You're very right on that point. And in fact, this is an area that while it thrived as a separate city, separate from Port Arthur, um, through until 1970 with amalgamation to Thunder Bay, Really, it's an area of the city that has seen intense activity, residential, commercial, government, City Hall, just across the street from Brody Library, and a starting point for many new immigrants. Mm -hmm. Going back over 100 years, and some associate uh, the East End with other side of the tracks. Uh, historically, uh, late 1800s, early 1900s, known as the Coal Docks, the Coal Docks neighborhood, the Coal Docks area mm. on the water side, the Lake Superior and Kaministiqua River water side of the uh, CPR mainline, where many new immigrants arrived through the late 1800s and certainly into the 1910s, pre-1914, to live with family members or to board, coming to a new city, and often it, it's a cheap rent that's that's needed, especially if it's close to work, mm-hmm. and you've not got a car. Well, of course, that was the case in the in the early 1900s, and Brody Library sits at the at the extreme edge of that neighborhood. Certainly, been an anchor since I think 1912 when this building was constructed, uh, but in that period, the East End itself has seen tremendous changes and shifts, uh, not in architecture and not in the street grid, but in occupations or lack of occupations in capacity. There's more emptiness to the area now than there used to be. And because I married someone who grew up in the East End and whose father and grandfather, and I should say fathers and grandfathers, meaning both his parents' families immigrated to the East End to work the coal docks, to work the grain elevators, to work the shipyards, to work the uh, lake freighters. There's uh, an example of a family, I know from my own experience, his stories that um, thrived in the East End, in the historic East End. The memories are of um, children, grandchildren, aunts and uncles, uh, sometimes boarders in the homes that were two and three stories sometimes who shared too few toilets. There was no sewage until at least the 1940s um, in the East End. As you asked me about the bones of the place, there were some pretty weak bones in that neighborhood. The experiences were really um, daily small interactions, lots of neighbor support, 
lots of neighborhood rivalry too because this was an area where people immigrated from Ukraine, from Italy, from Finland, and where uh, so much of the skilled and unskilled labor needed for the industrial waterfront derived. So kids growing up there, like my husband, um, experienced that rough and tumble, always someone coming home from shift work or off to the waterfront, down to the coal docks. Uh, it, it, it wasn't an especially sanitary area to grow up. Uh, there were no sidewalks as such. And um, gosh, in, in uh, 1912, there were probably 3,400 people, 3,000 plus who lived in that area of the city, plus 200 cows. As, as my research has told me. Where were the cows? Hmm? The cows would have been in the backyard. The cows would have been um, in what perhaps became parkland, once having livestock in residential areas was zoned out, though that didn't happen until the 1960s, huh. just prior to amalgamation. Huh. But the vibrancy of the East End, particularly east of the tracks. Uh, the East End was considered west of the tracks, also extending to this building, the Brody Street Library, but um, with a different demographic makeup. That area, though, east of the east of the tracks, um, suffered some downturn. It wasn't paid much attention to before probably 1950, when the um, subway, pedestrian subway, and the bridge overpass was built um, after much petition by different neighborhood groups uh, to city council and to the CPR. Finally, with the city of Fort William and then CPR, plus some federal money thrown in, the neighborhood was made more accessible. And there was more of a relationship with the west side of, of the East End, if you want to call it that. And then, of course, through the 50s, post-World War II, and with uh, cars showing up on the streets, there was less room for cows, more, <laughs> more room made for cars, and folks were more mobile. And so the area did experience um, out-migration, as well as uh, just a downturn in upkeep. Mm. I wanted to say, though, jumping ahead 100 years into the year 20, 2012, when we experienced uh, the big flood, the last big flood in Thunder Bay. And um, that east end, east of the tracks, was in fact uh, flooded. It's probably one example, as you and I have talked about, um, where and how neighborhoods might come back to new life, where we might reclaim, where there's opportunity to work quickly and bring that vivacity back. Well, there was an example, a glimmer, a, a very strong glimmer actually, something of a bright light, I might say, in the 2012 to 2015 period when neighbors emerged, city works was on site, the water treatment plant dealt with, and sidewalks installed, street improvements made, homes restored. Yes, there was public money, there was also a homeowner investment that was made back in their homes. There was a sense of, this is important to keep. Uh-huh. So out of a crisis and the need to intercept that crisis in order to protect this area of the city, there was a real surge of coming back to the character of the neighborhood that um, my husband would tell me about. He remembers from stories from his parents and grandparents mm-hmm. when there was a, a very much a collaborative uh, neighbors helping neighbors uh, situation. When I try to look at um, how neighborhood revitalization happens, um, the first flush is like wealthy people come in and say, oh, you made this so funky, I want to live here too. But if you dig a little deeper, often it is about communities deciding that this place needs to be preserved, an, an upswell of, of appreciation of the architecture, or the history, or the convenience, or the opportunity, and also the resilience sometimes of a place that was built to last. Um, but when you were talking about that that neighborhood being so stacked full of people living in such proximity to one another, lacking some core bones like sewage management and electricity, I'm sure, but still being pretty okay and happy with a densely populated neighborhood. Reminds me of my stepfather who grew up in Cincinnati. He was one of nine. uh, So that was nine children. 
Upstairs lived his grandparents, and above that lived uh, some uncles. So in one three-story house, that's like 15 people, right? And every other house in that neighborhood, they were not far from one another. The connections were huge, and the wealth of social resources were huge. So as somebody who's lived in a lot of neighborhoods that nobody had given them much love for a long time, many of the spaces are empty, many of the spaces have not been renewed when something happened to them, Uh, to see how quickly that can just fill in with people again and become a vital place, I think of this neighborhood. I agreed. I think of it as neighborhood, and it's something of a startling uh, stat that uh, that I discovered in getting ready for our, our conversation today, that the density in 2021, last uh, federal census, population density in the East End, about 1,100 people per square kilometer. By comparison, across City of Thunder Bay, generally, the average density is 330 per square kilometer. And so I have to think to myself, does that make a difference to people's working with each other, getting to know each other, um, working together on projects? It may very well make a difference. It's density that is realized only in the East End, not in other parts of the city. So there's a factor to be built on, and it's possible that that coming together, because there were so many together after the flood in 2012. You know, as urban designers will speak to the value of higher density housing at the core, where services are are available, that we should be thinking in terms of designing for that. In the East End, we've already got it. And if we were to imagine that neighborhood getting all the love it could use... It could hold more people again. It could hold animals again, probably. We know better now how to do that. So it's safe. And maybe we could tap into a whole circle of imagining and also of expertise. And if we did so and chose to do things like make those old buildings be as efficient as possible. I was visiting with a friend recently in the East End in an old house, and the previous tenants had lost it because they were trying to heat it with electric floorboards, and they had almost no insulation, and it was it was bankrupting them. She went in um, without much more money, but with friends mm-hmm. and a bit more savvy, and spent some time figuring out how to improve the insulation and change how heat moved around. And now she lives in that same home, at a much lower cost, if we can empower people to find their own good solutions, maybe wonderful things could happen that I haven't even foreseen. But the return on investment in a space that has good bones, it's in the right location, it's close to water, it has some history, it's proven that it's got the, the mojo that works for people to live close together. Seems like a, a great place to easily imagine a kind of vibrancy and resilience it doesn't currently have, but could have quite easily. It could have quite easily. That type investment and that type project, home ownership can often bring out the best in a person wanting to be comfortable in their own, in their own space. But it may attract more people to live in the area who would want to invest. And so perhaps provide a balance to what now is perceived as an area of dangerous streets, Um, illicit activity in the alleys as well as on the main streets and has created something of an attitude of fear where people don't necessarily know who their neighbors are. There are fewer families living in the area now. There are more boarders and short-term renters. Um, There are no shops to speak of, two or three that that are still thriving. But the infiltration of um, particularly street drug use. Um, Honestly, in my experience in the neighborhood, so visible that there is a fear from others and a, uh, a shrinking back from confronting or from seeing the new use, never mind thinking about how that might be with a community project put in front of otherwise rather disadvantaged individuals who are being taken advantage of by street drug dealers in the area, in otherwise vacant homes that that are taken over 
But it might be that there are community projects, not unlike what pulled people together in 2012, that could bring out the best in all of those individuals and have people working across cultures, across backgrounds, across streets. Yeah, everybody uh, who deals with and tries to support people in their lives and people in their communities um, that have insecurities of, of health issues, mental health issues, addiction issues, um, financial insecurity and dependencies that are not attainable, you can't fix one and ignore the other. They are absolutely overlaid. And I do think we're at a crisis point in this country where we've somehow given permission for people to fall out of security that we used to just assume it was our job to take care of. So I'm hoping we're at a tipping point. Uh, And I absolutely agree that a healthy neighborhood has to have healthy residents and not just healthy bones. (laughs) But we can't go too far down that, I think, in this conversation. But I'm really glad you raised it, that if you build it and you don't heal the people that need the space, you've caused another problem. You haven't solved anything. That's right. The potential is there. The opportunity is there. And not just in the East End, but in other uh, neighborhoods, too, that have seen... uh, a rise and fall of uh, prosperity and well-being. But the potential is there in that particular neighborhood, and it's because of the fact that that it's a neighborhood still appears in moving through it like a village within the city. Mm-hmm. More than a neighborhood, actually, like a village within the city. Sure, shops that are closed that perhaps could be reopened or renovated for more residential, but there is a terrific opportunity for um, City of Thunder Bay, as well as private investors. We're talking about developers. Mm -hmm. And gosh, there's no shortage of need for housing Mm -hmm. to be able to take this downturn and perception of danger and flip it with positive community projects. Because in a village that's full of spaces where people can gather and find services, whether they're business services or health services, is already ready to roll. It's built. It just needs a lot of love. And I do want to briefly talk about how we give love to neighborhoods, because right now Canada is in love with private ownership of homes that are single-dweller homes, when less than half of Canadians actually live with other people, right? So how ridiculous is that? I'm sorry, I lived alone for a long time. I'm not a handy person. I like renting. I like I like roommates. I like finding ways to, uh, opportunities to live affordably to me that work for me and my friends. Um, So if we're looking at all these spaces that need to become more efficient, the need to get solar panels or heat pumps or raised up so that you have a different infrastructure underneath invisible to you right now, but invaluable going forward. um, I don't think that it makes sense for us to just do that as an individual homeowner is the only way it's going to happen. I'm, I'm looking for more creative thinking that will kind of make that something very affordable, very feasible that happens to whole neighborhoods instead of piecemeal here and there like, oh, I'm going to be Monet one dot at a time. Like, I don't think that works. But anyway, that's my little rant on that front. I think there is more than one way to do it. The ways we're doing it right now are insufficient, but other ways are knocking. And, and if, I, if I see that happening, then obviously that is a place you want to be, right? However you're there as a renter, owner, business owner, employer, there's amazing potential in that neighborhood. But it's not the only one I talk about. Let's go to the other end. Neighborhood that's not even built yet. A neighborhood that's been in the planning stages for decades that is finally getting ready to move forward. And the people have a lot to say and a lot of concern about Parkdale and the expansion of Parkdale into the William Bog. And I... It's all fuzzy to me. I don't even know, like, what's the bog? Where is this bog? How does it go? What's the concern? And also, what's the possibility if that same sort of doing things differently than they've done before, being more collaborative and being more open to new solutions that you can imagine when you think, let's solve this. Let's meet everybody's necessary needs and and be really innovative in the William Bog opportunity. So what have I got going on you with that? You've got a lot going with that idea because, in fact, it is the future for the west end of the city, still within the city of Thunder Bay's urban settlement area, probably close to 50 years since official plans for the city's growth have been in place. Parkdale has been a part of the city's official plan since the 1970s, formalized in 1982, I believe. 
in advance by about 14 years when um, the Lakehead Region Conservation Authority, the province, and the city of Thunder Bay undertook a study of the natural heritage systems across the area and determined that the wet area in the Parkdale location, 2,800 acres approximately, that's envisioned for urban settlement to extend, a good part of it qualifies as a provincially significant wetland with its own value that has nothing to do with housing, has everything to do with services for the city in the ecological services that it that it offers. It's a natural sump for water coming from the headlands in our watershed. It's a filtering system. It's home to a diversity of rare and endangered species, amphibians, butterflies, as well as plants. And it sets the geographic context, in fact, for all of City of Thunder Bay, because out of William Bog, flowing under the expressway through what we've called intercity, and wasn't built historically intercity between Port Arthur and Fort William because of the wet feet to Lake Superior, William Bog figures significantly as a natural heritage resource that um, now with provincial designation as a PSW. No, that doesn't mean personal <laughs> support worker. That's what I make letters, but okay. But provincially significant wetland. Um, it serves as a, another piece of the puzzle in how best and using best practices to build out a new subdivision because it is a new single detached mainly demand for housing in Thunder Bay for those who are looking for their own new home still predominantly for single detached and in the residential subdivision with very little commercial, no industrial interaction, some park space, but not what we're hearing from urban design specialists who speak looking to the likes of the East End where we just were visiting, Heather, where there's such potential for mixing and accelerating the interaction of different types of uses in one neighborhood. Still in the Parkdale, proposed subdivision, there's no shortage of demand still in Thunder Bay for that type residential fabric. And so the challenge is to mesh the significance of the wetland with the market demand there is for that type housing in that type suburban off the edge of the city location. So uh, in my my day job, helping people figure out um, their financial plan, a house is a huge part of that plan. If that's what they want to do, then usually they're planning to spend most of their working years paying it off, you know, 25, 30 year mortgage. Um, And in that time, how they use it's going to change. They might have a family, they might have a divorce, they might turn the garden into a veggie garden, who knows, right? So for me, uh, developing a new development in the middle of a climate crisis means you need to change a lot of assumptions because you know that forward does not look like backwards and and there are resources to really inform what should we do so we don't regret that 25-year purchase 10 years in so this is your field of expertise there are what comes to mind is some of the things that might be brought to this table Heather you know with a development opportunity like Parkdale um, that would sit not in but abutting and surrounding Uh, William Bogg, there's opportunity to introduce sustainable best development practices Um, at the developer level when the terms of the subdivision agreement are being written that would ensure stormwater management that would be based not only in pipes in the ground but in green infrastructure. Infrastructure is something that affected the East End and its um, capacity to continue the flood, particularly. But in the Parkdale situation, there's opportunity because it is a greenfield. It is a greenfield, always a developer's preference over... There are more than a few vacant lots fully serviced within the municipal boundaries for for Thunder Bay could be developed for homes, but um, not the greenfield that um, that Parkdale represents. Um, That being said, it's uh, creating a series of stormwater management facilities 
bias whales, planted boulevards with pervious pavement in the sidewalks, dry swales that would appear as ditches or boulevards. So this would involve not only the developers' costs, but also City of Thunder Bay to manage city boulevards eventually, to collect water, to let it run and infiltrate, as opposed to run off into the bog where there might be some contamination, because the bog is, keep in mind in this situation, right next door. It's not actually a bog, it's a conifer swamp. Very magical to to get into it, to explore if one has the opportunity to do that. Um, Back to building out the subdivision, there are any number of ways to integrate green with grey infrastructure, I like to say, so that the stormwater is managed before it's allowed to run off. That can be done by the developer as a part of the subdivision agreement, and I can't imagine that City of Thunder Bay Engineering isn't insisting on uh, on that type alternative being considered. And then at the individual homeowner level, there are always opportunities for the windows, for the solar panel, for more efficient um, energy provision. But when it comes to stormwater, disconnecting those eavesdrop pipes. So instead of being run directly into the city's uh, stormwater system, have it infiltrate across even just 10 feet, you know, three meters of either grassed area or graveled area on the lot so that the water is held. And if it's not held, it's slowed. Performing at the individual homeowner level, what the bog right out the back window is doing naturally and all for the sake of protecting the quality of our water and preventing flooding or other extreme event that might happen because of climate change. Yeah, you're really triggering in me this whole idea that we have an opportunity going forward to root ourselves differently in the spaces we live in and and act more not like people who have views out the window but people who have a relationship with the world around us and an enormous power to do good by our choices, which is also a commitment to getting out there, seeing what's going on, maybe saying, if I'm going to buy this property next to this bog, I need to understand better how my property and my bog are together doing things, that there's an interaction that I am in charge of in a way and need to be responsible for personally. Um, And that same idea of both the city investing in changing the infrastructure so it has, it really leverages the wisdom and the power of natural systems and doesn't try to replace them with more simple, straight-edged, will deteriorate over time and not deepen like nature does, uh, infrastructure that was all the rage for 50 years, right? We're, we're trying to upgrade to something that looks messier and might be uh, harder to keep track of because there's more going on, but actually is really powerful. And and that could be part of this new development, but also everybody's backyard, really. Your business's backyard, your school's backyard, your personally owned backyard, your I, a tenant here, and I want to be able to use the green space. Uh, can we pull up some cement? And, and when I, I had uh, my last rental unit in Montreal, was a ground floor unit. And there was a backyard that had been a parking and a dog run for years. And I asked permission to pull it up. Um, and I actually excavated in the first three feet of that backyard an entire car an entire car that had been left parked there in the 1950s and compressed and dug under. And my neighbors got into it. And it's amazing how much work it was just for it was probably five feet by 12 feet lot uh, for me. But it felt good to get out there every day and have this little project. It was a year of like, it looked like an absolute construction zone craziness. And the second year was growing only things that can pull toxins out of the earth because the earth was hurt. But eventually it was this oasis and the whole neighborhood was like cheering me on. I had all these balconies of people above me that were taking pictures they'd put in my mailbox to keep progress track of what, what, what we were pulling off. So I do imagine this, this relationship and stewardship of, of our neighborhoods. This is a perfect time to just reimagine that too. A perfect time. And the um, fact of the matter is that with best practices adopted at every level of development, for example, just to take a side step, 
a critical piece of the Parkdale development will be that the I'm not sure whether the city or the city and the developer together, but will extend the sewage system. The, the, they call it the sanitary pipe system, the sanitary system, so that there are no septic fields. There are no possibilities, or there are very few possibilities for waste to escape. It's an example of using gray infrastructure will ensure that waste is encased flowed to our sanitary waste plant and the bog protected right next door. Mm-hmm. Ensuring that water that we use is managed well in our homes and then across our neighborhoods. It's really possible now with sustainable development principles that are accepted by the UN, are accepted now across engineering and architecture fields through international standards as well as uh, North American standards to uh, do better with the natural resources that we have. There's There's an opportunity with Parkdale to have the William Bog not only protected but become like an educational resource and and a front yard to the development in the same way that Chapels Park or Boulevard Lake are considered valued assets to buy a home beside. There's that potential with Parkdale And what a perfect name for the development, Mm -hmm. Parkdale. It's just that the park is not so much for recreation, it's for ecology. I think, too, though, because you immediately triggered for me during the Strong Towns, they really pointed out they were talking to municipalities, right, and and trying to clarify why you can go bankrupt in the long term with sprawl, right, how expensive it is because things that are farther and farther away from where you have to do the final management of a problem are expensive but per inch like the distance is expensive and infrastructure that de- degrades often lands you with the bill long after you got paid for it so he was recommending that we celebrate the towns that whose infrastructure were long paid for those parts of town um, and and give them back a little bit more of what they're so generously giving us but also maybe revisit how much it should cost to put a new development in So if you really, really want to have a brand new place and a brand new space that's never host a home before like yours, I think that's going to come at a premium. I think it should come at a premium. You can't take it off the table. But maybe people should be fairly advised. We want to build you something that's going to work through a tough time. And the fair price, therefore, is. Is that fair? It certainly figures it actually speaks to the the uh, financial rationale behind the value of stewardship. Mm. It's, it's stewardship that each and every one of us living in a city or living in a region should realize we're all responsible as stewards for where we live and should uh, should welcome that responsibility because it's about ensuring a safe, healthy place to live. Parkdale is an opportunity for uh, playing out those uh, principles of stewardship, the principles of sustainability. Mm-hmm. And perhaps I'm being um, Pollyanna or overly optimistic, uh, since there certainly is worry amongst environmental groups in this area for the, the loss, death by a thousand cuts, mm-hmm. to our natural heritage systems, including William Bogg. But with, with a carefully crafted framework for development, there is not only a balance that can be reached, but the value in the forefront that stewardship and taking a steward's role can become not only acceptable, but, but welcomed. That makes me think of uh, the stewardship opportunity in the rest of the city. All of those lots that are fully serviced that are not attractive right now. Well, what would make them attractive? Is that not part of our job as stewards, to say this space needs somebody to take care of it. Why is nobody willing to take care of it? What can we do to change that? And how many ways, if we look around, how many opportunities to restore things, to enrich things, to make them more sustainable and resilient when it's really, really hot or really, really dry or really, really wet or really, really snowy that are there in making it greener and also in investing in the infrastructure of buildings and of stuff underneath underneath our buildings <laughs> that, that could give us a great bang for our buck 
You know, if, if we could identify the problems instead of pretending that they're going to solve themselves, maybe we could welcome so many more people here and build our green wealth. If you can consider it our green wealth, but being a, a place that looks as beautiful as as soon as you get outside of the city and go for a stroll in this incredible part of the world gives to you. Well, Heather, we've been talking about infrastructure and mixing green with gray infrastructure, pipes with waterways, if you will. Um, we've talked about meshing natural systems with engineered systems to build out our city. Mm-hmm. And there's opportunity in every type neighborhood to do that at different scales and maybe more visibly or less visibly. But really, we have to be willing to accept new technologies too, right. new and different ways of doing things that um, take advantage of a sustainable best practices for growing plants, for building with sustainable materials. And there might be a higher cost, as you were saying, in the upfront. But it oft, it's going to save us in the short term. That's right. That's right. And we'll be there for next generations. Uh Since um, that, thinking in terms of next generations, whether we're talking about about, um, architectural stability or we're talking about road permanence or we're talking about um, soil, we're at a point in the 2023 of having to think about new technologies, different ways of protecting and of rebuilding those assets that we that we count on we assume we're going to have and and yet we won't if we don't take that stewardship Mm -hmm. role yeah i think a lot of the math that people give on whether or not something is affordable and if you take it a little bit bigger perspective like next generation and you add the the full formula in my mind to the equation very different answers come out the other end and i've been dreaming lately about different ways of of restoring the food sustainability of this region, and also restoring people's understanding of food, their understanding of growth and of, of plants and of the natural world, their capacity to eat fresh local food and not need it be served for them or made you know easy in some way. Um, but you are going a step further in imagining we have perfect opportunities for some of these technologies for food production that are are going to be absolutely essential in the urban city of the near future. If so, we can grow food without worrying about how it has to get to us because it's going to be here. It's going to be here. And really, I see uh, just a, a steadily increasing commitment to building the local food system, actually building out a regional food system. And at every point in the supply chain, from actually planting and growing, harvesting, through to distribution and marketing. I'm adding community kitchens to that, I think. Oh. I think we should be serving everybody, but that's me. Not just selling it. True, true. (laughs) Making food accessible. There you go. Making food accessible, that's right. Well, yes, um, working with others um, during my years with the City of Thunder Bay and with the District Health Unit and the RFDA, as well as university and, and area farmers, a couple of politicians, and then Earth Care a unit of the um, Infrastructure and Operations Department for City of Thunder Bay that introduced City of Thunder Bay to a food charter uh, that council passed years ago, and then a community environmental sustainability plan, or community environmental action plan was probably the correct term, that provided a platform to allow for a Thunder Bay and area local food strategy, a how to get to the point that you're talking about, where we're not only comfortable, we're assured healthy food for ourselves in this community. And again, not to become too overly optimistic about um, what could happen, because really there are constraints to our growing all of our own food here at this point in time. So far, nobody's growing coffee. So far, nobody's growing coffee. That would be a problem for me. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's that. But So um, I have a problem with constraints. I understand there are challenges. It is not easy. It is not a let's do this and then it's solved at all. And I also believe that it can't be just one way of thinking that'll get you there. We need to broaden the conversation and invite to this table more strengths and concerns as well so that that we can solve it. But I, I, I don't think it's a permanent constraint. I, I believe very strongly that we could grow all the food we need here. It's just a really long journey. And uh, the sooner we start walking that way, with actual conviction we're going to get there, 
the better. I'm very anxious about it, actually. And you gave me a stat when we were chatting earlier that did not allay my anxiety. Apparently, you're part of a conversation crunching how long the food in this city would last if we weren't bringing it in from outside the city. And I know Switzerland in the Second World War it was a, a crise de conscience when they realized they only grew enough food in Switzerland to feed the people of Switzerland eight months of the year. And that, that was a profound shakeup for them and changed lots of things because eight months of the year stretched to 12 is a lot of hunger. It's, it takes a lot of ingenuity to pull it off. How did, how did Thunder Bay add up? We calculated that um, if all highway access were stopped and truck transport, which is how most of our food gets to us, to our tables, that we would be able to serve up ourselves for no, no longer than three days. That there is a three-day supply of food available for us. So talk about a challenge. So there's the challenge. The constraint that I'm referring to really has to do with the difficulty still that anyone has who wants to farm, who wants to grow their own food, not in their backyard. There are certainly fewer farmers in the area. Uh, There are fewer farms. There are fewer fields. And yet we have a cache, an inventory of arable land not yet crop ready. Where's the constraint? There isn't the workforce knowledgeable enough with the implements to prepare, which might include clearing, some tillage, understanding of when to till, when to seed, what to plant. There isn't the knowledge base yet that's shared widely enough to attract new farmers. But that's a yet. That's the key part for me. Right? It's a challenge. It's not a permanent constraint because we're really good at changing, sharing knowledge. And the other issues are training and capital. And if we change what is payant, what makes sense for capital, we can flow capital differently. Not you and I sitting here cooking up great ideas. It would take a lot more brains and a lot more commitment at a broader level. But that's all I'm saying is like it's definitely a constraint. It's a total bottleneck right now. And it is strangling Honestly, it's lessening how much food comes out of this region right now. So it's a crisis, I think. Uh, But uh, I I, want to focus on the feasibility of solving the crisis. And there are people that want to make food, grow food for sure. And you can learn important stuff really quite, quite quickly if people give you the tools and the time and the trust, I think. But no, not not in a single season at all. The sooner we get on this one, the better. Well, that's right. And as we've talked about regarding neighborhood revitalization, where the bones of so many neighborhoods are there from urban services to architecture and streetlights, we're in a position to regrow those neighborhoods. Regarding growing food, we're in a position, if there were sufficient investment possibilities for Yes, new ways of growing food, Ah. and I want to touch on the uh, quiet growth that there is of not only greenhouses, but vertical farms and other aeroponics facilities that are growing not just greens, we can't live on greens alone, (laughs) but growing foods from fruits to vegetables and doing it without soil, doing it in facilities, doing it in cities not in the rural, traditional agricultural areas. They're called CEAs, Contained Environment Agriculture. Mm. Used to be greenhouses only, but with new technologies initiated in Europe for lack of space for growing more food in soil, and with much less ag land inventory than we have here, no question, think Holland, Mm -hmm. more food is being grown and grown nutritiously without the intrusion of pests or extreme weather conditions and grown in where the zoning is not necessarily agricultural, it's industrial or it's even institutional. Mm -hmm. We have more than a few areas within City of Thunder Bay limits and the technologies again are available to promote that type agriculture. Myself see that as not necessarily replacing the um, 
50 acres of buckwheat that I'm growing is cover crop on my small parcel just west of the city, and I'm doing it to amend the soil as much as anything at this point in time, but the bees love it too for the honey. But to strongly say that integrating the new technologies with the traditional types of agriculture that we have in the Thunder Bay area, mainly dairy, but with more than a few um, beef cattle operations and every other type of livestock, plus market vegetable gardens, no question, but integrating and thinking about CEAs as all-season locations for growing food, and we're taking a few steps closer to being more food secure and perhaps bringing in fewer tomatoes from California. They're pretty tired vegetables by the time they get here on a truck. And um, encouraging more to grow here in greenhouses, vertical farms. There are inventive possibilities for how food can be grown. Where's the downside to that? Or where's the, well, why aren't we doing that now? Investment, capital. And actually, with your background, I'm interested in, in chatting some about where and how collaboratively you know, government recognized at the provincial level, they're written in the provincial policy statement, protecting agricultural land and promoting local food. There's a local food act in the province of Ontario, for heaven's sakes. Together with individual entrepreneurs' interest, we know that local food is not only highly demanded in this area, we can't keep up to the supply. Long-term care homes can't get enough of the local food with contracts that they have with local producers. We've got the makings of um, a food system that will have us become more secure. Back to being comfortable with accepting innovative techniques, new technologies, new places to grow food. And also I think with um, moving away from siloed past-the-buck-ism systems... And towards vulnerable, honest collaborations, right? Where instead of saying it's you versus you, building a culture of what's the best solution for all of us? What can we try? And how will we know that we're achieving what we want? And when will we revisit? Because improvement's got to be an ongoing goal. That much more humble and, and trusting and equal um, collaborative way to work as a community to solve problems. I think that's key. But to go back to your one with what's the number one thing in the way, and I think it's capital, uh, we would need to really unlock this, something like the Second World War when the government said there's going to be a, a top on profits, there's going to be an expectation of reinvestment. They, they frog-marched capital to where it was needed by community. And capital said, oh, okay, just till we get to this crisis. And they came out the other end richer for the experience because it made them go places and do things that they might not have done otherwise. Plus, they had whatever they'd done beforehand that put them in the perfect position to be part of solving that problem. So I, I don't think it's going to be a bunch of people grumbling that managed to unlock the capital. But I do think we need to raise expectations that this needs to get solved before the leaders that are all followers... They are followers before they hear it enough that they believe that they need to be that uh, bossy with capital. Because outside of that right now, capital is squeezing the small guys. So those who could have afforded to be generous just 10 years ago are less able to do so right now. And more of us who could get by are not getting by at both ends of the spectrum, the production and the consumption. And that is a sign of crisis. So there's more than one reason, not just because good people think it's a great idea, but there's more than one reason to say this is time to twist the arms a little bit, lay down the law and say we're in a time of crisis Here's what's necessary, and you need to help solve the problems. Yeah, and being straightforward about the crisis that we're in, I mean, the climate crisis, and it, and it is a climate crisis. It's about more than change. But that's where, you know, and you referred to the Second World War. We've talked about the 2012 flood here in Thunder Bay. Those were crisis points at different scales. And... Unfortunately, the, the climate crisis, so slow-moving, except when extreme weather events hit us hard, that we're, we're not collectively responding as effectively as we should. But making the case for um, adapting to, to 
climate change and mitigating the factors affecting climate change through the way we practice agriculture, the way we build, where we build, minimizing our greenhouse gas emissions, but doing that with full awareness that we'll, in the end, have a more resilient and a more stable regional food system, making the best of what we have making the best of what we have and um, growing the, I mean, it's an amazing array of foods that that we can grow here. Uh, no, not bananas and no, not coffee yet. So, <laughs> so that's where trade comes in. There's no question about that. But um, there's one report that's just come out and you're probably aware of it, but I would suggest anyone interested in looking at um, the potential future stability of our community of Thunder Bay through a food lens. To take a look at the Thunder Bay and Area Food Strategy, the Food System Report Card, just published in 2023. I didn't have anything to do with it, but shifts and upticks are really encouraging. In spite of the fact that there are fewer farms and fewer farmers, that's really only one piece of our food system. There's a lot to work on, and we've got the opportunity to do that. It's realistic, it's pragmatic, and it's very, very hopeful. And, you know, it's like you've done a bunch of trial runs. A lot of people have figured things out by doing. And we, that, that's such an opportunity to springboard and build on good, solid work. Good, solid work. And really, what makes up the kindness economy? Really being alert to and sensitive to the natural systems that surround us that actually set the context for our living in a city. We're surrounded by um, waterways, forests, farmland, and and wilderness. But um, understanding that um, those natural systems are, in fact, our context and are why we can be hopeful about a healthful future going forward here. If we are kind to those systems, if we are kind with each other and pay attention to where there are our needs for better access to, to healthy food, for example, um, homes or housing for people who need it, who aren't necessarily in the market for a single detached in a greenfield, will be an example of the kindness economy if we can go that way. I think that's a great place to end. I'm going to have a hard time cutting things out of this conversation. I might not, but I really appreciated your time and your thoughtfulness and your expertise. It's been really great. Thank you so much. Heather, thanks for the opportunity. Um, You've given an exciting opening for those of us who are working in the area of land use, development, and, and natural systems. Thanks. Wasn't that wonderful? Thor Cartledge, municipal planner, sustainable community development, and natural resources protection specialist. And I have to say, I think I can now call her my friend. And that's an honor. Innovate, new solutions, innovate, cool technology, innovate, new solutions, cool technology. So that's where we kind of got to, right? Food technology, all the ways we can we can grow food inside in industrial sites of which we have more than many options in Thunder Bay, but also how there's technology that's rooted in better understanding the power of the wild and also the impact of the unintended so we can build and design better. I love it. Invest, redevelop, invest, revolutionize, invest, redevelop, revolutionize. It is a revolution we're talking about. It's a, it's a people and planet first reimagining of, of our everyday personal spaces, of our yards and boulevards, of our homes and neighborhoods, of our city. And there's such potential to leverage what we know and give it another go. Integrate, gray with green, into 
Gray with green, seen with unseen. So that vision of, of having more greenery, more life, more respect for the wildness as it, as it deepens and spreads in our cities, I absolutely love. And I have to tell you, I'm recording this on Saturday afternoon. And uh, I recorded this conversation with Thora Wednesday afternoon. So this morning I got up early to finish editing that conversation and take out our ums and, and, and rebalance the volume level so that it was easier to listen to. What a great way to start my day. And then I put on my headphones and put on a podcast while I made breakfast for the family. And I had to send her an email and say, well, first of all, it was great spending my morning listening to you. But secondly, oh my goodness, could I have a more on-topic interview to listen to after listening to our interview? I'm listening to a conversation with Dr. Douglas Talami, who I've never heard of before, but oh my goodness, he is so all about what we are talking about. He's got a book, it's called Nature's Best Hope, and it's about the impact you can have and how you choose to manage your little piece of land. And, and what a difference it makes and how important it is, how much of the land around the world is, is kind of seen as a decorative skirt around a property managed personally by people. And if we make those spaces more biologically diverse, if we, if we even just take a part of them and fill them up with rich local native plants and all the bugs and rodents and mammals that, that will then flourish for that home, what a difference that'll make. And she immediately sent me back a picture of a copy of that book off her own bookshelf. So uh, she's already way ahead of me on all of this. I love it. Intercept, course correction. Intercept, heal the crisis here. Intercept, course correction. Heal the crisis here. And when she talked about how much we need healing before we can really help ourselves. How much we need to help one another and make sure everybody's okay. And remove all the barricades and remove all the, the blind spots and just give ourselves permission to heal one another. And that means support those living with addiction, support those living with dementia, support those around us who need our care, because we are all vulnerable. And, and it doesn't take much, really, to just decide that everybody needs care, everybody needs basic dignity. Start there, and we will unlock all the other possibilities that are just knocking at the door right now. So how's that for a great chat, eh? What a great imagining. I really enjoyed it. So here's the song in whole for you. Imagine the kindness economy. Imagine the kindness economy. Imagine it here now for you and me. Heal the crisis here. 
imagine the kindness economy indeed. My name's Heaven McLeod. This podcast is as independent as they come. I write it, I record it, I compose these little ditties. I finance it too, although when patrons help out, when listeners decide to contribute, that just makes my day. You can do that at www.somethingdifferentthiswaycomes.ca Well, you'll find other episodes too. There's lots of great conversations and lots of songs. all the references. My library of hopes getting kind of long and big and cool. Thank you to Thora Cartledge for being my guest today. Thank you for listening. Thank you to Leah McKay for all the graphic work that makes such a difference. And to my family who give me the time for this. Something, something different, something.